For so many of us, our day-to-day is filled with feelings of bondage, of being stuck. For some of us, it is being stuck with internal struggles, fears, even addictions that hold us tightly. For others of us, it is being stuck in a set of rules we dare not break, fearing what others and God will think of us if we are fully known. But what if there is more for us? What if there is freedom? If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and turn in it to the book of Colossians. It's in the New Testament. Just a couple of few pages away from where we've been in Galatians. A few pages to your right. If you don't have a Bible with you, the text is in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, there's a few on the back table. Grab one of those on your way out or right now. Uh, that, that's our gift to you. Um, but because Christians are a people organized around God's Word and not around the opinions of uh, random dudes, uh, we want to have the Scriptures in front of us so that you know that what I'm saying it comes from there and doesn't come from me. Christians are a people who live in between two horizons. On the one hand is the horizon of Jesus' first coming, the coming in which he came to inaugurate the kingdom through his life, death, and resurrection. We live between that horizon and the second horizon, which is when he will come again to consummate his kingdom. And the season that we call Advent is meant to help us lean into that second horizon by remembering the first. In other words, we come and we... We come, let me try that again. We come and we, uh, we light these candles week after week as a way to kind of remind us that, uh, that Jesus is coming. We are one week closer. As we anticipate the celebration of his birth, we do so as a way to anticipate his coming again in glory. And this year, we are, we are ordering our, our life as a church around this series that we're calling The Incomparable Christ. It's almost cliche at this point because Christians seem to want to fight this battle every year that that Christmas is actually about Jesus. I I believe the indomitable Kirk Cameron made another movie uh, that has to do with this. I'm not recommending it, just pointing it out. But the question is, uh, which Jesus, right? Which Jesus is Christmas about? Who is that baby in the manger? The New Testament gives us a few powerful pictures that can both push on our normal image of the baby in the stall, but also give us a greater appreciation for what that event meant. So we're beginning this series as we go through a series of passages that speak to that. We're beginning this series in Colossians, the song of the greatness of our Savior. So if you have your place in Colossians chapter 1, as is our habit, I'd ask you to stand. Uh, We'll be reading verses verses 15 through 20 of chapter 1 of Colossians. This is God's holy word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, 
making peace by the blood of his cross. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, into this time we ask that you would speak. Open our hearts and speak. Open our ears and speak. We need to hear from you. And so we ask that, Holy Spirit, you would come and enliven us, rouse us from our slumber, whether it be physical or spiritual, to not only hear your word, but to catch a vision, an image of our glorious Savior. And so in that, to believe on him again and to go from this place full of faith, following after Jesus and all that he is. This all we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So the hilarity of that scene in um, Talladega Nights, that um, paragon of cinematic uh, excellence... The hilarity of the scene in Talladega Nights where Ricky Bobby is saying grace isn't just in the image of praying to the sweet, dear, eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus with his golden fleece diaper. Uh, the hilarity of the image is that the irony of, that, of the, how that captures what we do. What he did there and what everyone else did there is what is kind of, it, it exposes the underlying assumption that you can have Jesus your way, as if you're ordering off a Burger King menu, right? Whether, whether your way is, is the Christmas Jesus, or the grown-up Jesus, or the teenage Jesus, bearded Jesus, or, or the Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt, because you like to party and you want your Jesus to party too. This is what we do. We want our Jesus our way. But the New Testament doesn't seem to give us that option. Instead, it gives us a picture of Jesus that is full of glory and stubbornly fixed. And so this morning, as we start off our Advent series, we're going to be looking at this text. Uh, Look, it's a little deceptive. Your outline says two points. That's deceptive. Uh, But we're going to look first at how Paul breaks this up as we look at what he is, who he is, who Jesus is, and then, and then we're going to look at who do you say, who do you say that he is. So first, let's, let's look at he is. I want to, I want to break this passage up honestly into six points. Now, in saying that, please don't be afraid. Those of you who are here for a while, I, I promise you're not going to miss anything later this afternoon. We're, it should be rather quick, okay? Now, these six verses, scholars will tell you, it lays out like a song. It's poetry, and it's probably a song that, that whether Paul wrote it or not doesn't really matter, but uh, the, the song is there to, to bring glory to Jesus, and so each of these verses grasps at something different than Jesus is. Look at verse 15, because we see the first one. He is the true human. Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, if your ears are attuned to the Old Testament, like the folks who first heard this would have been, because that was the only Bible they knew, then then hearing this phrase, the image of God, uh, you would inevitably be led to the first couple chapters of Genesis. Right, because that's where God makes all things. He creates all things, including humanity. And what is special about humanity amongst everything else in creation is that man and woman, male and female, are made in his image. And so in some sense, to to say that Jesus is the image of God, on one hand, is simply to say that he's human. He's human, like us. Made in the image of God. But Paul says more than that. He also says he is firstborn. Now, when you and I hear, of that, hear that, when we hear firstborn, we think of creation. We're tempted to think what Paul is saying here is that Jesus was simply the first thing made, right? Now, there's a distortion of Christianity that popped up originally in, like, the 300s, uh, but, but has lingered throughout the ages and lingers today. Uh, it's called Arianism that, that did say that Jesus was the first thing made and used this verse 
uh, and others like it to, to, to say such a thing. And, and similar distortions today of Christianity, not actual Christianity, but distortions of it, say similar things. Say groups like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and, and Mormons, they say the same thing, that Jesus is just a creature. But in the context of Genesis 1 and 2, and in the context of the ancient world, firstborn had very little to do with your age, and very much to do with who got the stuff. Right? In, in, the, in the ancient world, the firstborn, that, that, that is a title that has to do with inheritance, not how old you were in comparison to your siblings. It had to do with inheritance, because the firstborn got all the stuff. It was something called primogenitor. To call Jesus both the image of God and the firstborn is to link him not just to humanity in general, but to humanity as we were meant to be. Because humanity in, in, in Genesis 1 and 2, in God's original design, was meant to be God's vice regents over creation. To rule all of creation uh, in, in a way that exercises God's loving and wise rule throughout it. And so in a sense, Jesus is what we should have been, but aren't. He is the truest image of God possible. So he's the true human, but he's also the creator. Look at verse 16. Paul says, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and upon earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now, there are two things that we need to get uh, to understand why this is a huge deal. Okay? The first is this concept of dualism. Now, when I say dualism, that probably goes over a lot of uh, our heads because that's not language we use today. It would have been very common in the ancient world. It's actually very common today. Dualism is the idea that there are two equal and opposite powers in the world. There's the benevolent power, and then there's the not-so-benevolent one. There, and normally, the, the not-so-benevolent one, the evil one, is associated with matter, with stuff, with, you know, hard things. Because we all know, or, or we seem to be led to believe, that what is most true of us, what seems to be best in us, is some kind of spiritual reality, not the physical. And so the physical is associated with bad, and the, the spiritual is associated with the good. That would have been normal to Paul. Uh, in, in his day, that would have been very common. It's not all that uncommon today. Paul will have none of it, though. The story of the Bible is that God, or that there's one creator of all things. All things, whether they are visible or invisible, nothing has been created that he didn't create. And Paul highlights this, not just with creation, but with this string of phrases, thrones, dominions, some of your Bibles say angelic powers, or rulers and authorities. Now, again, those words don't mean a whole lot to us, but to Paul's first hearers, those were all classifications of spiritual beings. Thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities were classifications that they understood of, of kind of like angelic hosts. And at times these are used to describe benevolent angelic hosts and sometimes malevolent angelic hosts. The point is they're spiritual beings. And Paul's entire point in saying that is that whether it's visible and you can see it or invisible and you can't see it but you know it's there, God created all of these things. The second thing we need to see is this echo that Paul is making. Because the crazy thing about this is not Paul saying that God made all things. The Bible has been saying that for millennia. It's that he's linking this to Jesus. This is why that, that word firstborn can't mean that he was just created first. Because if right here, Paul is saying he, everything that was created, he created. Everything was created through him and for him. And so... If he was created first, but everything was created through him, that means that it was through him that he was created. And that calculus just doesn't work. Okay? That, that's not what he's saying. Instead, this is an echo of Proverbs 8, in which the writer talks about God creating all things through his wisdom. And so Paul is saying here that Jesus, 
the truly human one, is also pre-existent. That through Him all things came into being. And in fact, that all things exist for Him. And that means that not only does He have the rights over all the world as kind of the firstborn, the, the one who is the heir over it all, but also that all of creation must yield to Him as its rightful Creator. So He is truly human. He is Creator. He is also the goal. Look at verse 17. Paul says, And He is before all things. And all things hold together in Him. All right, now again, that phrase, before all things, can trick us into thinking that it just means that Jesus came first. That's not what it means. In the original, it not only can mean, it can mean that, it came, that something came first, but also it can mean that something is superior to, other than. So Paul is saying that Jesus is other. In other words, he's not simply a good dude. It's certainly not just a cute little baby. He's laying in a manger of straw. He's not even a great teacher. He is qualitatively different. Qualitatively different than anything else. And what's more, he says, all things hold together in him. Now, this can mean at least two things. I think it means both, uh, but one of them we're going to get to in a couple of weeks. Uh, the idea that he upholds all things. That he holds all things together. And we're going to get to this in two weeks when we look at Hebrews 1. But the Bible teaches that the universe is not a machine. Right? That it doesn't run like a, a bunch of things with cogs. That uh, everything works exactly the same way every time. But that the universe is personalistic. Which means that God himself, things do what they do throughout all of creation. Because God is telling it to do that. Does he do the same things or similar things often and most of the time? Yes. But the, the Bible is very clear. That's how things work. And so in one sense, all things hold together in Jesus in the sense that his word upholds it. Like I said, we'll flesh that out more in a couple weeks. But the other thing this can mean is that all things find their proper place in him. In other words, everything finds its meaning in Jesus. You see, the Bible's clear that all of creation, and not least us, is dependent on God. That as creator, we depend on him for our value, our place, our meaning, for everything. And that only makes sense, right? Because a creator of something is uniquely qualified to say what is, that thing is for, how it's going to do well, what's going to harm it, how it's going to flourish. Paul is saying that Jesus is the one through whom we all find our proper place. And apart from him, we do not. So he's truly human, he is creator, he is the goal, and he is also the beginning of the new creation. Look there at verse 18. It says, and he is the head of the body of the church, he is first, firstborn from among the dead, so that in all things he might have first place. Now this seems like it kind of jumps into the middle of something, but that is only because we, we don't remember the story. We have to understand the story of the Bible. You see, I said that we were created to rule over creation. To exercise God's loving and wise rule over things. And you can watch the news and see that that ain't happening. I also said that we were created to find our place, find our, our meaning in, in, in God and specifically in Jesus but in, and in relationship to him. But you and I both know that that doesn't happen. And that is because we rebelled. We turned away from God. We betrayed him. We wanted to define our own meaning. We wanted to define our own value, our own purpose. We wanted to define what was good and what was bad. We wanted to be our own arbiter of reality. In a sense, we wanted to be our own gods. And when we did that, all of humanity became guilty before God. We earned death, both physical and spiritual. 
When I say all of humanity, I mean all of humanity, not just a few of us, not just the notorious, not just kind of the the outskirts or the people out there. I mean all of us. And we also became broken, which means we were stuck in that state. We needed a rescuer. And the great hope of the Old Testament is that when God comes to rescue us from this, to make things new, that death itself will be undone. It will come unspun. And God would renew creation beginning with us. And so Paul is saying that Jesus is not only the firstborn of creation, but he is the first taste of this new creation. He is the beginning of God's uh, reclaiming of the world. So Jesus gets first place in all things. And that brings us to verse 19. Paul says, In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All right? Now stay with me. Because Paul is making something very clear here that he's been hinting at. Jesus is not just some kind of powerful created being. Uh, Jesus is not simply some kind of greater level of angel or, or just kind of dude who transcended, nor is he simply a philosopher. Paul says, the fullness of God dwells in him. Okay, in Christian theology, we call this the incarnation. That God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, becomes flesh in Jesus. And we can become numb to this, friends, but this is radical. Listen to me. No other religion would say something like this. The Greeks had their gods who became flesh, but none of them was almighty. None of them was, was all-powerful, was, was the only God. Islam has its all-powerful God, but to become part of creation would be offensive and wrong. Here is the creator of all. The one in whom all things find their meaning. The one for whom everything was made. And one of our, one of our uh, great Christmas hymns says that, Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Which means that he, he does not think that creation is too far beneath him. Too awful for him. Too broken. Too muddy. Too fallen. He is willing to come and become part of his creation. He's not distanced from it. Repulsed by it. Or too holy to be near it. He enters into it. Jesus is not simply just a child in a, in a cradle. He is, the fullness of God dwells in him. These last three verses come together in this last one in verse 20. Because you see Paul touched on the beginning of the new creation. But he didn't say how. And so he sets up verse 20 by talking about the fact that Jesus is fully God. So that it makes sense. He says, and through him, that is Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself. Whether things on earth or in heaven making peace through the blood of his cross. Alright, let's draw these strings together. I said a few minutes ago we needed a rescuer. That we were stuck. We needed someone to come and make things right between us and God. Because we had betrayed him. We had turned away from him. We had broken relationship with him. God promised to rescue us. And he did this with this cryptic promise. In Genesis 1 and 2, if if you start to read through the Bible and you begin there, which I don't really recommend, but if you were to begin at Genesis and start reading through the Bible and you read chapters 1 and 2 and everything's going great, and then in chapter 3 everything goes bad. And, And right in the midst of that, right as everything goes bad, God makes a promise that he's going to fix it. The way he says it is, I'm going to fix this. And you're going to fix it. I'm going to make all things right. And you're going to make all things right. God's going to make everything better. And humanity's going to make things better. It's cryptic. How, how is that? And as that promise played out through the Old Testament, it was not just humanity, but through the family of Abraham. 
And then fully, and then even, even more particularly, it was through the tribe of Judah that that promise would come to reality. And then even more particularly, it was through the line of David. But the problem was David's line was corrupt. Judah's tribe was flawed, and Abraham's family was just as broken as the rest of the world. And a drowning man can't save drowning men. But the prophets began to hint that something new was going to happen. Isaiah told that a child would be born who would be a sign to us that God is actually with us. Daniel told of one like a son of man sitting on the throne of God, ruling over all things. Micah said that a king would be born in Bethlehem whose origins were from of ancient of days. And Jeremiah, that someone would come who would bring the new covenant and take away our guilt forever. God answered his cryptic promise of us fixing it but also of Him fixing it by Him becoming one of us. God became flesh in Jesus to live the life we couldn't, to be perfect before God, and then to do what Paul speaks of here. He reconciled us, making peace by the blood of His cross. Now, I know that that is offensive to many of us. We don't want to associate God with something bloody and violent. But listen, this is why verse 19 is so important. Forgiveness, and if if you've been here at Holy Cross, you've heard me say this a lot. We need to keep saying it. Forgiveness is always the offended one bearing the offense for the offender. It It is not simply denying that such an offense happened. It is not wishing it away. It is going, I am willing to bear the offense for the one who offended. By our betrayal of God, we deserve judgment before God. So God became flesh to bear our judgment and to reconcile us to himself. He bore it so we don't have to. And that's where that word peace comes into play. Because you see, peace in in the biblical worldview isn't just like us not fighting. Peace means all of the relationships, all of creation's relationships, all of our relationships all line up and fit together exactly as they were meant to be. But our sin has disjointed them. Brought them out of, of sync. And so, but the, the idea here is that Jesus is the one who through his work brings it back. He is the true human. He is the perfect image of God. He is the creator of all things. And all of it exists for him. He is the goal of all things. And everything finds its proper meaning in him. He is the center of God's renewed people. And the first fruits of God's new creation. He is the very fullness of God made flesh And he's the only one who can reconcile all things to himself. That is who he is. Now, I want to use this this morning to help us lean into this season. Specifically, first, by looking at grasping the glory. This year, you and, you know, and it began, it began long before uh, Friday. But it begins generally around Friday in which we are inundated during this season. With this sense, this message that we are the center of the universe, that we deserve everything that we can get, that we should, if life were fair, have everything we want. We are inundated through circulars and through advertisements. We are, we are inundated through all of these things. And the crazy thing is, we know that this is a ploy. We all know it's a ploy. We all know that advertisers are doing this to get us to buy their stuff. But we want to believe it. Something in us wants to believe that we really are the center of it all. If you don't believe me, just uh, find some children, give them a bunch of circulars from a bunch of stores and watch. Because within hours there will be more checks on the page of what they want than toys. 
We believe that we are the center of everything and that we deserve it all. But then there's the reality that when we, as adults, we know that when we put that kind of freight into the cart because we've done this year after year after year, we believe that finally, because I'll finally get what I deserve, I finally get everything I want, and then we get it and we open it and it lets us down. It doesn't matter anymore. It's as if we need more to convince us that we really are the center of everything. But this text tells us a wonderfully freeing truth. We aren't the center of the universe. He is. The beginning and the end of history isn't me, and it isn't you, it's Jesus. Don't be fooled by the fodder in the manger, okay? Don't be fooled or lulled into boredom by how we've tamed it and him. He is the king of glory. He told the crowds that before Abraham was, I am. From eternity past, he is the eternal son, full of glory beyond imagining. And the fact that this omnipotent creator, this one for whom all things were created through and for, would actually become someone that you could hold in your hands, that doesn't erase the glory. It it makes it even more wondrous. Christmas is not just about the birth of a baby. It's not even about a miraculous birth of an amazing baby. It is about the sovereign God, the one full of glory. The one who existed before anything else in perfection and fullness in his trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Seeking to bring to fruition a long-intended plan of redemption by sending the Son in the power of the Spirit to seek what had been lost. That is what Christmas is about. And that brings us to this or nothing. Listen to me. Again, the reason why we find that scene in Talladega Nights so funny is because we all want to craft Jesus in our image. To make him what we want him to be. Whether that is... um, kind of the grand social revolutionary Jesus who came to upturn all power structures or, or the culture warrior Jesus who came to put down immorality or, or the grand loving acceptor Jesus who came to receive everyone exactly as they are and affirm them or whether it's some kind of the fiery preacher of hell Jesus. We want to craft him in our image, but we cannot. You cannot have a Jesus other than the one who is and the one who is is right Here, you cannot have the baby so peaceful and harmless without having the mighty God that you and I have betrayed and wronged. You cannot have Jesus, the acceptor of people, without having Jesus who teaches and shows us what humanity was meant to be quite different from what we want. You cannot have free religious Jesus without having Jesus, the head of the church, not the affirmer of our independent religious feelings. You cannot have Jesus, the great teacher of timeless truths, without Jesus, the reconciler who came to die in our place. You cannot have the cradle without the cross. They don't come separate. You cannot have a Jesus separate from these things any more than you can now go and say, you know, for me, I want to have Bill Cosby as Cliff Huxtable. And not with all of the more recent inconvenient revelations about him. 
Jesus is either this or he's nothing. But let us not pretend that we can remake Jesus in our image who ultimately becomes slightly more, a slightly more special version of us. The Lion of Judah cannot be tamed. So I ask you this morning, and I, honestly, this question is for all of us, whether you have been in church your whole life or just found yourself here this morning. Have you considered him? Have you considered him? Don't stop at the manger. Don't stop at the cave. Look at all that he is. Have you considered him? He is glorious. And he is gracious. He knows everything about you. Even the stuff that you hope no one would ever know. Even the stuff you, you don't even know. He knows everything about you. And he came to rescue you. Don't settle for sentimentality and don't settle for complacency. If he is this... If he is this, then you were made for him and he was born to rescue you. If he is not this, who cares? We don't need the religious opinions of one more self-made guru, especially when those uh, religious opinions got him killed. Rather not, thank you. In Christ, friends, we see clearly the God who made us for himself. Humanity as we were meant to be and humanity that because of the cross we are to become. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the fact that Jesus has come in all of the fullness of God to rescue us. This season, as we are tempted to look past that, to trees and gifts and decorations, all well and good in their place, Lord, let us remember that all things, all things, even this holiday, are for Him. And so as we lean into this season, let us grasp firmly Jesus, I pray for my friends here who have never done that. I pray that you would work in them even now that they would do so. For those of us who have, but man, are we prone to wander. I pray that you would grip us and pull us back to yourself. That we would catch a vision for the glory of our Savior Jesus and be driven into worship. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.